Some hearts are built on a flight plane Keeping one eye on the sky for rain You work for the ground that gets washed away When you live closer I often walk beside a creek with no name, bursting with frog song. They're singing Shenandoah, or at least that's what I hear. As I walk, I dream dreams of my father, and the love I feel for that unsung man reaches inside my chest and turns my aging heart one notch counterclockwise. It is on those walks, as the dark gathers close to the ground to envelop me, that I find, as the Quakers say, peace at the center. That was John Blaze, author of a brand new book of poetry called The Jubilee Poems. John just turned 50 and he's a wise, fierce old soul. His words helped me to want to love better, to stay grounded in what matters, and to use my words to heal and restore. I loved my conversation with John. Enjoy. I'm here with John Blaze. Hi, John. How are you? I'm doing well, Steve. Thanks very much. And I want to borrow, my first question I want to borrow from Chris the Tippett. Uh, I don't know that I've ever asked this question first, but I want to ask it of you. Uh, what is your spiritual or religious background growing up? I am the firstborn son of a Southern Baptist preacher, Steve. Um, and by... I use that word preacher intentionally. He's not a minister or, a, you know, uh, something like he is the, the Southern Baptist preacher, uh, the guy who knows how to uh, bring it in the pulpit, so to speak, and uh, is cut from a cloth that uh, is kind of old fashioned. And yeah. uh, so really grew up in uh, Arkansas and Texas and kind of the, the buckle of the Bible belt. So that is my denominational background. And uh you know, bumps along the way, but for the most part, man, I look back on that fondly. Um, it was really a, a very positive experience for me. And you became a pastor uh, at some point. You're not a pastor now in the literal sense of the word. Uh, was it in the Southern Baptist denomination as well? It was, yeah. Spent some time out at uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth and uh, found out all that I did not know um, <laughs> in about four years there, and uh, then spent almost 14 years, Steve, as a Southern Baptist pastor in Arkansas and Texas. Wow. Um, you don't strike me as a Southern Baptist uh, person. <laughs> that's that's what I want to say from the front end. Uh, okay. I, whatever that means, you know, um, and I don't want to be disparaging of Southern Baptist at all. Um, but I think I do have a caricature of what that means. So talk to me about your journey since then. Um, we moved and it's been almost 14 years now. We moved out to Colorado um, and I was coming out here to co-pastor actually with a buddy from seminary. Oh, wow. And um, it was a non-denominational church. And so that was kind of the first step away from kind of the formal Southern Baptist relationship. Um, but, uh, loved this buddy very much and felt really good about the church. It was an historical little log cabin church out here in, in Colorado. So super picturesque, man, just kind yeah. of a dream, but that's what brought us out here. And, um, 
I stayed a year to the day, Steve, in that role as co-pastor. And my friend and I found out that co-pastoring works really well in books. Um, and uh, what they don't tell you is that in the flesh and blood stuff, it that that can get kind of hairy sometimes. Yeah. Um, especially we're both fairly strong personalities and uh, the church was not some, you know, 8,000 member mega church that could absorb two personalities like that. So we, we quickly started butting heads about some things and, um, you know, we didn't have any street fights or anything like that, but, uh, <laughs> street it, uh, fights. <laughs> uh, it, it yes. got a little conflictual. And so, uh, a year to the day after that, I resigned to try to salvage that, that relationship, that friendship yeah. and, uh, stepped from that into some freelance publishing work for NAV press, actually, really? um, working on a bunch of products for the message Bible. Yep. And uh, got my feet wet there, and they let me learn some things. But that's um, that's a really Reader's Digest version, uh, you know, of that story. But, uh, yeah, I think what you said there initially about Southern Baptists, I would have to point to my parents, Steve. They're, they're Southern Baptists, and they're, I mean, they're, you know, very firm in that denomination. But, man, they gave me a long leash of grace growing up. Um to explore different things and, um, you know, from listening to rock and roll to going to dances to, you know, just kind of maybe the list of things that Southern Baptist kids usually don't get to do. I got to do. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. And, uh, so yeah, maybe there's, um, you know, if, if I'm not up to the mold, so to speak, I, (laughs) I have my parents to blame. That is a gift. Wow. Um, that's a real, that's a real gift. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so you just released a book of poems called Jubilee, uh, 50 poems. So why 50? Why now? And you self-published it, which is interesting. So, uh, talk about this book. <laughs> um, well, on, uh, March the 22nd, um, is my birthday and I will be 50 years old, Steve. So uh, I wanted to try to mark time in some way. And I thought about, you know, I could run a marathon, but my gosh, that's just so far, (laughs) you know, that's why we have automobiles. Um, And I could uh, go hike a 14er, but I've already kind of done some of those, those physical type things. Um, So I thought, why not try to self publish a book of poetry and um, have been encouraged and maybe challenged in that regard quite a bit in the last few years. And it just really never has felt like the right time. Uh, But this felt like a good time to do that. So as you know, the word Jubilee refers to 50, I'm 50 years old. So the thing was, well, let's pick 50 poems. And they're really curated after, um, you know, it's going on about 10 years now that I've been doing this. Um, First off, kind of haphazardly, but a little more intentionally, I'd say the last four or five years, the writing of poetry. Um, so that's what that is. And, uh, the self-publishing route was something that I felt like I needed to do as a personal challenge. Um, not a lot of people walking around trying to acquire poets to publish them. Um, poetry is not, you know, the best selling stuff, unless your name is Mary Oliver or maybe Billy Collins or, you know, Mary Carr, someone like that. Uh, the rest of us exist in, um, almost in absentia. (laughs) (laughs) I've been reading your poetry because you've been so kind as to release it uh, on Facebook and Instagram. 
Yeah. Uh, I remember you did a series. Well, maybe you always do a series, but I remember the series around Advent that you did a series of poems that I just loved. I mean, I just, they're so striking. Um, and so would you do us the honor, John, of reading, uh, maybe reading one of your poems from, from Jubilee? Yeah. Let me see here. This was an, this one is uh, titled Turn, Turn. There comes a time to commit yourself to the scripture of matter, a season to seek second the words of God and become first a disciple of his handiwork, a time to study the historical context of aunts and uncles, a time to translate your dreams, paying close attention to correct tense, a time to read the evening skies from right to left. Hide all these turnings deep within yourself so that as time flies and days pass, you might not sin in vain. There you go, man. <laughs> you might not sin in vain. Oh my gosh. I love that last, that last line. And that's, so what I know of your poetry, and it's limited, um, but it's, it is that. It's, it's sort of, to, to me, beautiful, stark, um, uh, vivid images, and that was, that was no exception. Um, I love that. T tell me when you wrote that and sort of what was going on in your mind when you wrote that. I think that was a couple of years ago, Steve. Um, and I write stuff and then work on it, you know, edit it a little yeah. bit. Stuff has been edited uh, by the time it got to the Jubilee. But um, I was really starting to become interested in, uh, I've got the line there, a time to study the historical context of aunts and uncles. Yeah. Um, I was really interested in my parents' lives as translated through the lives of their siblings. Um and I don't know about anybody else, but, you know, my aunts and uncles, I have not lived close to them over the years. And so it's I usually only am around them on holidays. So um, there kind of came a point there where I really tried to engage them a little bit. And as I found out more about my parents through their eyes, I found out about them. And that just expanded my own story, you know, of where I came from and and what I'm made of and the kind of roots that are involved in my family. And so um it was just a really interesting slash beautiful season that has continued on even now. And, uh, and just, I mean, I've always loved my aunts and uncles, but I, I actually know them now, you know, um, in a way that I did not before. And so that's just part of that kind of committing yourself to, to, to matter to these things, um, that exist on the, on the earth. So. Beautiful. And I think there's, I mean, there's something too in your forties, I'm 46. So um, I'm not, um, you know, just a few years behind you, but there's something about forties too. I think that I've been drawn to those kinds of things. I've been drawn to sort of close the loop of who I am, who not close the loop, but maybe um, expand my knowledge of who I am through, uh, these ancestors of mine, because I think, you know, you spend twenties and thirties, maybe saying, I'm not going to be like them. <laughs> I'm not going to. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> I think there comes a point where you realize, Oh Lord, I am much more like them than I knew. And there's no getting around that. And it's not all bad. It's, it can be a real beautiful thing. 
So yeah, so, they really so, can. Yeah. So well, I'm glad to hear that about yourself as well. So that's good. <laughs> so when did you know you were a writer? I always enjoyed reading, Steve. Um, and one of my, you know, kind of things that I hold very dear is that uh, I really believe that the best writers are are good readers. They're constantly reading something. It doesn't have to be, you know, high literature or something like that. It can be uh, the comics for that matter, or it can be, you know, Facebook status updates. I, I mean, whatever it is, but, but the best writers are good readers. Uh, and I've always been, um, just had an affinity for reading. And uh, when I got into college, started doing, I took some, some English literature classes and so had to write extended papers and book reports and even some poetry during that time. So probably during college um, is when I kind of started doing a little bit of that, cut my teeth on that and um, and just got a lot of affirmation, you know, from people who would read those pieces or those papers um, in which they would say, look, you're you're not Steinbeck, but but you're OK. You're, yeah. You know, you're yeah. pretty good. Um, you might want to think about that in terms of what you're going to do with your life. So. Um, and I used to write out sermons, I, I'd manuscript them. Yep, um, yep. so that was always a piece of that, you know, weekly preparation for Sunday. So, um, just a very natural kind of a, you know, an outgrowth of what I would do in my head, try to get onto paper and then would speak that verbally. So, yeah. And then was, was there a transition when you realized, oh, poetry is something that I love versus just prose? Like, when was that? Um, I think probably in terms of, I don't know that I could point to a specific time in which I was really taken with poetry. Um, as far as the crafting of poetry that really came, um, well, it was probably about, about eight or nine years ago, Steve, uh, I was doing the editing stuff kind of like I am now, yeah. um, a full-time position with another Christian publisher. And man, I would spend all day in these 50, 60,000 word manuscripts. Um, and I was just about to go bonkers <laughs> yeah. um, because there is a lot of repetition in Christian nonfiction books. Yeah. I, I mean, anybody who pays attention to that knows. Um, and a lot of times that comes because people are primarily speakers and you repeat yourself when you speak. And yeah. so that shows up in your writing. But um, it was almost an, a sanity move in which I challenged myself, at least initially, to come home in the evenings. And could I write in 16 or 20 lines what this author had taken 60,000 words to write? Um, and that, sound, that sounds a little bit ballsy. <laughs> it is, but I love it. I love that. But I found out that, you know, for the most part, I, I just about could. Uh, yeah. And that, to me, really distinguishes uh, what poetry is, and that is a compression of language um, and, the, and the brevity of really trying to say something in a, in a limited amount of lines and even words and phrases. Um, and so that's kind of how I got started with that stuff. Um, and that obviously kind of led to other things, you know, quickly in, in which I, you know, I stopped trying to do the manuscript approach to that. Yeah. But um, I really just love being able to compress those thoughts as tightly as I possibly could. So, uh, you know, the thought of an epic poem, like, you know, five, six page thing. Oh, man, that's mm -hmm. I, my, that makes me nauseous. You know, I just that goes against the grain of what I believe poetry to be. 
and that is this very, very tight language. Yes. I think um, Rumi, I mean, I love Rumi for that reason. There's just a lot of beautiful, small um, Hafiz as well, I would say is the same. Um, And so, uh, okay, back to reading for a second, because when you said, you know, good writers are, are, are readers, I resonated and I remember, I actually remember the first novel that I fell in love with reading and it was 10th grade. I had a great English teacher. His name was Mr. Tobin, this Irish yeah. guy. And he had this beautiful, <laughs> I mean, really, like he has beautiful Irish brogue. I, I lived in Europe at the time. So he, I mean, from Ireland, Irish mustache. I mean, he was Irish through and through. Uh, you could tell he's kind of a ladies' man, although English teacher. And he would, <laughs> um, he would get to know his students. And then he would pick out a book for you to read and then do a report on. So based Uh-oh. on what he thinks what he thought you would like. And the book he picked for me uh, was Trinity by Leon Uris. And I remember, again, 10th grade, reading that book late into the night. And I never, I mean, I read Hardy Boys and, you know, that kind of stuff growing up, but I was never a reader until that book. I wow. fell in love with the characters. And, um, and you know, now I sort of think Leon Uris, um, you, you know, good, good storyteller, maybe not the world's greatest actual writer right yeah um but really fun stories do you have a book like that 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 like the world changed for you or maybe a couple books where you said oh my gosh i love reading yeah um it's actually probably would you say that was 10th grade for you 10th grade yep um i believe it was the eighth grade steve uh i was assigned uh, the book, A Separate Piece by John Knowles. Mm. Um, and that was a part of a, an English literature class and read that. And, um, it's interesting. I've gone back and read it a couple of times, you know, in, in later years here. Um, and I think it was just kind of where I was, you know, uh, as far as even uh, maturity level. Um, mm. but this book spoke to me in a way and through the characters. And I read that and just thought, you know, this is just this beautiful, this beautiful, beautiful thing. So, um, read To Kill a Mockingbird not too long after that. Um, and again, and you know, it's hard for me to talk about that book without the movie, um, right. close, closely on its heels, you know, and the, the Bernstein score and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, again, that was another one. And then closely after that, read Bullfinch's mythology for that same English class, and, and fell in love with those Greek myths, you yeah. know? Um, and so that, that's, that's probably three titles. And man, I could talk about this stuff for a Forever. couple of hours if you wanted to, but, uh, just some very, and again, almost like you, I had a teacher there. Her name was Mrs. Dorothy Pace and she knew what she was doing. Um, and her love of the written word came through. I mean, it oozed through every pore in her body. Yeah. Um, and so she just preached that gospel and I, I was a convert, man. Yeah. I, yeah. I went forward, uh, every class period, you know, and rededicated my life to the pursuit of, uh, reading and writing. And, uh, and it started early there, man. So, yeah, I'll join that religion. Yeah. I, I will, I will bow my knee to that. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, and, you know, there's something about, I think, um, I think in the world where, have you ever met someone that's like, ah, novels, I don't have time for that. Or, or like, ah, you know, and, and I, I just go, wow, I don't even like, are you a human being? 
Like, are you, are, do you have blood in your veins? Like who would not, who, who could survive without good reading? I mean, that's what I think. Like if I couldn't read, oh my gosh. I mean, it would be like losing both of my arms and my legs probably. Um, yeah. I just yeah. love, love, love getting lost in story. story. Um, it inspires me like nothing else. Um, all right. So here's another question, John. And um, I've really appreciated your voice on social media these days. Um, in, in America here, we're living in just a funky time uh, where people are retreating to the extremes, I think, uh, right or left and, and many others. But your voice on social, social media is kind of this Atticus Finch voice where it sort of calls me back to remember huh. what is valuable. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the world and what, like, how you think maybe words and poetry can help us out of the mess that we're in? I mean, that's a whole, that's a big question, but I know you got some juice for that. Yeah. Um, I tell you, I'm actually privileged right now, Steve, to be working with Eugene Peterson on some stuff. Um, and, uh, one of the things that Eugene has said over the years, this crazy astute, you know, voice, um, is that our words don't inform us, our words form us. Mm. Um, and I was talking to a buddy the other day about that in which, um, I, I'm really concerned about the way that we're using language right now. Yeah. Uh, and social media is probably a good example of that um everything from the actual words that we're using to the tone yeah uh, there are a lot of people that believe you can't read tone in a in an email or a status update and i'm like dude you need to get you need a q-tip um yeah, <laughs> yeah or, or or two yes. or three because yeah. yeah you can absolutely read tone yeah um and so these words and this tone that we're using I, i'm afraid it's doing something detrimental to us and we're not seeing it and probably the people who are going to be um, the inheritors of that the most are our kids and grandkids. Um, and uh, I, I really believe that, that poetry and, and even, like you said, novels and, and things like that, they may can help us during this time, if nothing else, just to kind of watch our language and, and how we're not only talking about things, but talking to one another. Yeah. Um, it's it's a really kind of a disconcerting time. And I hope, I, I mean, I'm not going to say that I'm not intentional about that on social media um, because I am, I, I feel a, a calling to that as, as much as you would feel maybe a calling to the, you know, your church that you're a part of right now is that to somehow give voice in the midst of that, like you said, to maybe these things that matter um, because you know, every day we wake up, there are the 10,000 things, so to speak, vying for our attention if not the 10,000 things waiting to offend us. And we are in an intensely offendable people right now. Yes, uh, yes. Some things are valid and some things need our response and our justice efforts uh, to speak into. But there's a lot right now that uh, and we're just offended by every little thing and feel the freedom or the ability to, to speak out at that. Um, and it's, I don't think it's serving us well. Um, again, that, like you said, that that's kind of a big question there. But 
Um, if nothing else, just trying to keep your head in a book of poetry these days, maybe that would help you as you're interacting in these different social media channels. Uh, if nothing else, just maybe to use a little restraint from time to time and not feel like that you have to, you know, to write some lengthy thing that, I mean, let's face it, at the end of the day, you're probably the only one reading that. <laughs> yes. uh, um, and um, so I, boy, I don't, I don't know. I, how do you feel about that? Is that, are you tracking with me on that? I'm tracking big time. I'm, I'm nodding my head like with every, um, I, in, in fact, so true confession, um, I, I, I really do try, um, I think on, on social media, especially to be kind gentle even and sort of um I, I hope like you are i mean i hope i'm like what i see you to be but the other day i got into kind of a someone i was talking about god is both masculine and feminine and god's image is both masculine and feminine and someone just really disagreed with that and then i disagreed back with too much heat and one of my friends took a screenshot of the conversation on his phone <laughs> and texted me and said, um, let it go focus. Yeah. You know, this is not worth it for you, my brother. And it was loving. Um, but it's my friend. He lives in Providence, Rhode Island and name's Andrew. And I needed that. I, oh, okay. Yep. Cause I lost focus. Yeah. Um, and no one like, um, I started peeling back the layers of that and I realized yeah, I I think strongly about that, but sure. there's so many, like, underneath my argument with this person was my need for validation, you know? So if I put it on Twitter and then it gets, you know, a number of likes, then not only am I um, voicing my opinion, but I'm getting affirmed for it. And I think that's the deadly embrace of social media is that it seems like the more critical, offensive, bold you are, the more retweets and likes you get. Yeah. And that feeds the beast, right? It, it, it feeds the beast of affirmation. And, but like you said, that starts to form you and form us. And all of a sudden discourse, uh, we don't, we don't know how to have civil discourse. Um, and is, is like you said, Absolutely, you can read tone on on Twitter and Facebook. I mean, it's absolutely so. <laughs> I I think you're right on the money, and that's why I I um I sort of likened you to an Atticus Finch, who doesn't talk about everything in every moment, but when he does talk, man, you're gonna listen, right? And he he takes up the important causes but um but not everything <laughs> not everything and that's the other thing I, I i would agree not every thought that we all have needs to be published you know on facebook or twitter we like a good a good thought at the end of the day would probably be what did i not say today what did i restrain <laughs> myself from saying today was there anything right uh so i'm with you man but i'm trying to learn from you too because you're you're uh, a little ways down the road um, on that for me. So I love your voice, man. Really do. Well, I appreciate that, man. I really do. And uh, trust me, I have my moments when uh, I, I would love to, you know, uh, drop the reins and rattle the cage. Uh, and on occasion, you know, do that. You just yeah. have your moments there of 
of humanity, especially if it's something that really kind of, you know, pokes the bear, so to speak, your yeah. own personal bear. Um, I saw your Twitter exchange the other day. I was paying attention. Yeah. Uh, and I was I was following along and uh, it kind of it kind of trailed out and I thought, well, maybe he's going on to do something else, but, uh, sounds like you had a good, an actual friend who spoke into that. So I did Andrew, my friend, Andrew, he just That's awesome. lovingly That's said, awesome. got in my face and said, drop it, <laughs> drop it. <laughs> so I did, but yeah, man, sometimes John, when I get, when I, when, when, when the bear is poked and that was one of those issues for me and I lose, I lose, grace and um so that's a good learning for me um <laughs> an embarrassing learning but a good one a good one God. so uh you you co-wrote a book with brennan manning called all is grace uh his last book and i wanted to ask you john how was that experience i know that was i was really at the end of his life and i'm a i'm i love brennan manning i've read everything he's ever written uh how was that experience to write with him you know, it was really a, a privilege, Steve, truly a gift. Um, the publishing house that I worked for at the time, we had acquired um, two or three titles. You know, one was definite. The other two, I think, were kind of to be determined status. Um, but uh, about that time, Brennan's health really deteriorated quickly. And um, he pretty much lost his eyesight, you know, by the time that I was working with him. Um he could kind of see a television screen, but uh, he lost the ability to read, which is something that he loved to do very much, kind of like you and I talked about earlier. Um, and uh, so uh, I was in Colorado Springs at the time. He was in New Jersey, um, which is where his sister lived. And so he was close to her, uh, you know, in, in proximity there where she could watch after him. So I would fly up on a Monday um, to Newark and then drive out to the coast to this little room that he lived in. And we'd spend two or three days there, man. And I would interview him and we'd talk about stuff. We'd go out and eat pizza or ice cream or whatever. And um, there was a, a book was, was going on, obviously. And, and I'm pleased with the result, All His Grace, his memoir. But there was a lot more. Uh, actually, I believe there's always a lot more than a book going on in those kind of situations or relationships. And um, I just had the ability and the the opportunity to befriend him yep. uh, late in life. And kind of like you said, I'd read all his books, you know, and looked up to him and thought he was this really, you know, cool ragamuffin -y kind of a guy, you know, that we'd yeah. all like yeah. to hang out with. Um, and it turned out that I actually had that opportunity to yeah. and yeah. Um, and found out that all that stuff that he says in his books, um, you know, it's, it, it's pretty much true. You'd love him one moment. And the next moment, you'd want to throw him out the window. You know, he was just this kind of a, where he talks about being a, a contradiction in terms. Yeah. Um, that's really who he was. Um, but it um, it was a beautiful thing because with the memoir, I also got to go around. Uh, he had a pretty close group of friends, uh, some men known as the Notorious Sinners. Yeah, I read about um, that. It's kind of his men's group. And uh, I got to interview a lot of them and get their perspective on Brennan and kind of what, you know, he offered to their friendships and uh, then had the the high privilege of getting to meet his wife, uh, his ex-wife, who lived down in New Orleans at the time. And um, we remain friends to this day, man. She emails me uh, every once in a while. and We have an exchange and uh, she's really a beautiful, beautiful lady. Um, 
who loved Brennan very, very much. And um, she had some great stories and, and ways to add to that memoir. So um, it was really a group effort in getting that book to come together. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and it turned out okay. And I think he was pleased with it. So uh, that, that was really the goal. Well, I think, so that's Rosalind and he writes a lot about Rosalind's other works. And um, when I read it, I think I read it, John, I read it in just pretty much one, one sitting. Yeah. And um, it's really raw. I mean, if you haven't read All His Grace, I, it's his memoir. It's Brennan's memoir. And you, you really get the sense of just what you just said, that this guy um, embraced the love of God and rejected the love of God his whole life. And, and, and like it was a constant battle for him. Um, and it kind of wrecked me. I mean, that book was really, whew, I mean, it was hard to read um, and beautiful to read. So, yeah. yeah. So it was really well done. Um, really well done. And I love the, at the end, you do include some letters, I think, from the Notorious Sinners, uh, don't you? Uh, yeah. 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 Um, and I, I, I love those too. I love those too. So, um, okay. You know what? I posted on Facebook uh, just this morning. So we'll see how many questions came in, but I said that <laughs> I'm about to interview the brilliant John Blaze. Any questions you think I should ask him? So you up for answering a few of those questions, maybe rapid fire? Yeah, let's go. All right. Scott Austin, my buddy Scott, he's a pastor in New York. Um, he asked, what are some practical ways we can help our congregations develop their poetic imaginations to understand scripture better? Wow. Um, you know what? I'll, uh, mention a name I mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, I posed the question to Eugene Peterson, what, you know, what is a pastor? Should I be? And that's when I was, was doing pastoral work. What should I be reading? Mm -hmm. Um, and he said fiction and poetry. Um, I think probably as a pat, you know, we, we talk about kind of, leveling um, it out where, you know, everyone is a pastor or everyone has that ministering vocation to them, so to speak. Um, but you know what? Pastors are still in, in a positive sense is how I would use this word, the gatekeepers for your congregation yeah. Uh, yeah. as to kind of what they're thinking about or what they're uh, reflecting on. So I think probably as much as, as you can read as a pastor uh, in, in, in poetry or even, even just poetic writing, which is, I mean, there's a lot of prose books, which are full of poetic writing. It's just this kind of a rhythmical, um, broad, imaginative, reflective kind of writing. As much of that as you can do, that will come through in the ways that you speak, be it in a sermon or at a, you know, at a bedside when a parent is dying or something like that. So, um, you can probably by way of your own example is the best way to encourage them to do that. Um, you know, you can, you can put something in their hand, maybe a book, um, refer something, you know, to them. Um, I, my experience is that often doesn't work because <laughs> people, uh, people like you as your, you know, as their pastor, but they usually do what they want to do at the end of the day. So yeah. um, the best thing is just to live your life in that way and let that be a witness to what you you hope for them. I, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Yeah. I'll pick that up. Uh, okay. Uh, my friend Greg, he is a pastor here in the Twin Cities. He asks, my favorite question to ask any Jesus follower is this, what do you, what do you see the spirit 
doing in your context right now, your ministry context? Hmm. Um. And even, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but even the project you're working on with Eugene right now might be an interesting context to think about that question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know what? I think there is, and, and, and I would say this would be true of my, maybe my spiritual circle of friends, but I also see this to a certain degree in the culture, Steve, and that is a, just a challenge to be attentive to your life, paying attention to things. Now that, that comes through in a lot of the poetry that's, um, well, I'll use the word popular these days, um, but, um, and even person like the writings of a Brene Brown, you know, someone who's kind of speaking socially uh, about things that we're going through. There's that constant refrain of paying attention to your life um, and just being aware of what's going on from your surroundings to what you're feeling inside to how you communicate with your kids. Um, probably that that call to be attentive is what I'm seeing. And, and I'm so thankful for that. I mean, that's that's at the heart of any of any poet is this attentiveness to everything. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I'm seeing that, um, I'd say in, in my circle of friends, as well as our culture, now, obviously not, not everybody's doing that or embracing that. Um, but, but it is a message which I believe is being spoken and is being heard by some people and taken to heart, uh, and trying to live an an attentive life. Uh, and that sounds kind of cliche ish, but, oh, no. but I do see that and hear that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think our mutual friend Seth Haynes does that quite well. Uh, he does. Say. Yeah. He's, uh, yeah. he's one of the guys in, um, that I've gotten to know, I think, that I would say, yep, he does that. He does that well. Uh, okay, uh, last question we got on Facebook here uh, comes from Tracy Rhodes. What's one thing you miss about pastoring full-time? Oh, that's pretty easy, man. Um it's all the money I made. Uh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really gone up, the, man. The it's huge, probably since you've, it's huge, huge like, uh, love offerings. Massive, massive money. Um, you know what? It's uh, it was it's the rituals around the important times uh, of life: birth, death, marriage, graduation from high school, graduate from college, anniversaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ability to be with people in moments like that, and and people want words from you in those moments. And so the ability to to try to speak some life, and again, it's that paying attention, you know, what's going on at the birth of a child, um, because you have parents in the room, but you also have extended family. And um, those were probably the times when I felt most pastoral, Steve. Um, And uh, and in a weird sort of way, really always enjoyed being with people at the at the end of their lives, Um, you know, when they're playing end game and that those were not always pretty scenarios. Oftentimes they were painful and, and full of regret and things like that. But you're, and those are some of the most holy moments in life. And for whatever reason, you, you have the opportunity to be invited into those moments um, that are so super sacred. And you have the ability to, first of all, listen, yep. and then to try to speak into those moments. It's just a huge gift. And that, that that's something I miss. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's well said. And even as I think about my life as a pastor, um, at the end of the day, those are some of the things that I, that I love the most. I mean, we, we, there's this lovely 74 year old woman 
named Carol in our congregation. And she is spicy. She's buried three husbands. She's going to tell you what she thinks. Uh, and she joined our little church plant three years ago because she wanted to be a part of the community. And so I got to be at um, her bedside, at, well, the bedside of her uh, third husband who, who who died and, and do that funeral. And um, there, there's just, I mean, that's pain, but there's nothing like being a part of that sacred moment. Um, I, I That's just, and you don't, I don't know that you can learn how to do those things apart from just simply being in that room and, you know, right. And feeling it. And, um, you don't, you don't learn that other than just by doing it, but it sure is, sure is beautiful. Um, all right, John, we're almost out of time here. I'd love for you to read another poem or two, if you would, from Jubilee. Yeah. Let me pull something up here real quick. Okay. Sorry about the delay there. Um, Let's see. This was entitled uh, Bound Away. It's about my my dad. Um, I often walk beside a creek with no name, bursting with frog song. They're singing Shenandoah, or at least that's what I hear. As I walk, I dream dreams of my father, and the love I feel for that unsung man reaches inside my chest turns my aging heart one notch counterclockwise. It is on those walks as the dark gathers close to the ground to envelop me that I find, as the Quakers say, peace at the center. Good Lord. Um, I'll read you one more. Yeah, uh, thank this you. Is, this is entitled Absolute Sway. Um, it's actually taken from a story that my dad relayed to me. His mom died. My grandmother died uh, about four years ago now. And um, yeah, we grew up Southern Baptists. My grandparents were what they refer to as hard shell Baptist. Do you know that phrase? No, I've never heard of that. Like super duper strict and conservative man, hard you know, they, shell like hard shell tacos, hard shell Baptist. Almost, yeah. Oh I mean, you know, God. just just crunchy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a real term. Uh, but oh uh, a beautiful, a beautiful lady. Anyway, this is about uh, a little exchange that the two of them had as she was in a nursing home and he was uh, tending her final days. So it's called Absolute Sway. He sits with his mother in room 710. The pain from her broken back is not quite so proud today, so they seize the chance to talk because they both know time is thinning. Her memory at 88 is still hungry, so he lures her to the waters of that old hymn, Have Thine Own Way. She follows for her sake as much as his. With dulcet voice, she sings a song sung many times over, But now the notes work toward her final molt so she can rise to fly. He sits in her waiting, yielded and still. Just gorgeous. And those are both in Jubilee? They are. Yeah, they are. So here's the deal. Uh, John just released this book. 
but you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, it's called Jubilee 50 Poems, right? Is that right, John? That's correct, yeah. And John D. Blaze, and um, I'm going to include the link to that on the show notes. You can just go to stevelings.com and click on the link. You can buy it or you can just, just search for it, Jubilee uh, colon 50 Poems on Amazon. And you can get the paperback delivered right to your door. Um, And it's just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful poetry. And I think, so this is my two cents. In these times where words are being bandied around like grenades, we need poetry like this. We need to feast on these kinds of thoughts. We need to pull back, pull away close the shades, close the phones, close the computers, stop reading Facebook and feast on poetry like this. I think, um, and I think that's an urgent need right now for us, honestly. Um, So John, thanks for being one of the contributors uh, of beautiful words that help us be human. Um, I just, I I can't thank you enough for, for being one of those people. Well, man, I appreciate your time very much. It means a lot that you uh, were interested in talking to me about it. And uh, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree on the poetry front and uh, appreciate the work that you're doing pastor. Let's see. It's uh, that is not a, that's not a small thing, man. Um, They're not probably not paying you a bunch of money like we joked about a minute (laughs) ago, but uh, it's a faithful endeavor and um, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you, my friend. I really appreciate that. Um, all right. Well, I love and I've just loved talking to you. I, I close out the podcast every time with these this sort of phrase that to me encapsulates the mystery that we are. Um, and that is that we are dust and breath. We're human and holy. We're limited and limitless. And we're in it together. I really feel that with you, John. Thank you so much for, um, yeah, for this time. I really appreciate it. Hey, you're very welcome. Thank you, Steve. Hey everybody, I'm Steve Weens, and this is my podcast where I explore humanity, spirituality, and mystery one word at a time. For more about my work, my writing, my preaching, my books, and all that good stuff, head on over to steveweens.com.